to James chapter 5. James chapter 5, we want to look at, uh, it's on page 1013, if you'd like to use a Bible from the church. This morning, I want to look at verses 14 through 18, but I'll start reading at verse 13, which is what we looked at last week, and read down through verse 18. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says. Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man uh, with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain. Then he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. You may be seated. Father, we're so grateful to have your word. There is no word like your word. Every word of yours is true. Your word is living and active and powerful. It is your word that brought this whole universe into existence. It's your word that holds this whole universe together at this very moment. And it is your word that in its power can transform us. So as we look at this word, Father, may you change us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Verse 14 asks the third question in these series of questions. Is anyone among you sick? He's already asked two questions. Is anyone among, anyone among you suffering? The prescription for that is you should pray. You should seek the Lord. We looked at that last week. The Lord is near to those who call upon him. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Let him pray in song, if you would. Uh, Why the Lord is near. The Lord inhabits the praises of his people. Verse 13 last week helped us to think more carefully about the matter of personal prayer. It is the loving and kind provision of our Father that he would establish a mechanism by which we could talk to him. And no matter what state of life we find ourselves in, whether we are suffering or whether we are cheerful, then we have a father who is near to us, a father who delights Uh, to have us talk to him, a father who has made a way for us to access his throne personally. 
And yet, as this passage goes on, and what we will consider this morning is not only has he provided us in his loving, kind provision a way to personally pray, but another one of his kind and loving provisions is he has surrounded us with a community uh, who uh, is to be concerned with prayer needs as well. It's not, a, it's not an either-or proposition. It's another like, look, look, no one here is going to pray for you, so you might as well pray for yourself. Uh, or it's on the other hand, it's not, look, you just go pray for yourself um, and, and because none of us is going to pray for you. Or um, you, don't, you, you don't know that you can pray for yourself, and so you're, uh, you're asking other people to pray for you. It's, it's not one or the other. It's both and. The Lord gives each of us direct access through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord surrounds us with some of his people who can be engaged in community aspects of prayer. And particularly, uh, as he's asked the question, are you, are you suffering? Well, then you pray about that. Are, are you cheerful? Then, then sing God's praises concerning that. Uh, are you sick? Now, I don't think he means um, that um, if you're sick, you shouldn't be praying for yourself. Uh, I, I, in fact, even the, the term um, suffering is a broad enough term that that suffering could be from physical um, sickness and, and that sort of matter. It's not restricted to that, but it can include that. I would suggest to you that, that the progression here is that perhaps after one has sought the Lord his own self or her own self and um, um, the sickness is lingering or perhaps even the sickness is worsening, he says, then involve others in that prayer. And there's two um, angles that he involves others. First, he, he involves the elders of the church in that prayer. But then when you get to verse 16, uh, he involves the whole community. So let's look at those one at a time, particularly at this matter of let him call the elders. So, so it's, a, it's a, an interesting diversion here. Are, are, you, are you suffering? You pray. Uh, are you cheerful? You pray. Are you sick? Call the elders. Let's think about that for a little bit. First of all, what's the nature of this sickness? Well, um, it, it probably is a physical ailment. 18 times in the New Testament, the word here, sick, it refers to a physical ailment, a, if you would, a disease, a bodily disease. And yet, 14 times in the New Testament, this term that is worded sick here uh, is used to refer not so much to a physical ailment, but to something all along the lines of a spiritual or an emotional um, uh, weakness. In other words, this sick could simply be, are you weary? This sick could be, are you despairing? So it doesn't have to be a physical ailment. It could be either. And of course, uh, oftentimes, if you have a prolonged, sustained 
physical disease that comes with it, the, the, the emotional and spiritual weariness and despair. And so in some cases, it's, it's all of the above. A person who is battling against a physical ailment, a person who is struggling through a spiritual or emotional weakness, let him call the elders. Now, in the scriptures, the New Testament, a, a, a local church has two enduring uh, offices, the office of deacon and the office of elder. An, an elder, oftentimes known as a pastor, uh, is, been, is charged in the scriptures with the task of providing spiritual care and oversight to the flock, to the congregation. And, and so here he's saying to the person who is battling some sort of ailment or weakness, call the elders of the church. Now, let me just kind of, I don't want to wander off the trail too much here, but let me just touch on something here. Call the elders, that presupposes that you are a part of a local church. I mean, if you're not a part of a local church, who are the elders that you're supposed to call? Because the office of elder is not, is not a universal uh, office of a person roaming the land. Uh, an elder is someone who has been called by a local congregation to provide uh, oversight for that particular flock. In other words, uh, I'm, I'm one of the elders. Carl's one of the elders. Freddie's one of the elders. We're, we're th three elders here in this church. And, and when, we, when we cease to serve this church as elders, we cease to be elders. It's, just, it's not like a card we have that we carry with us that we just kind of take roaming the land. And, and uh, uh, no, uh, we, we are elders at the discretion of this congregation. This congregation has discerned that this is what God would want uh, to occur here, and as long as we are then a part of this church, and as long as this church is pleased to do so, then we are, if you would, deputized, or we are authorized by the Lord under the governance of this local flock to serve as the, as the elders. And so this presupposes that the person who is sick is a part of a local body of believers, and that as that sickness is lingering and worsening, that, it, that, that, that person is to contact the elders of that local church. Wondered why does it ask the sick person to contact the elders? Why why isn't the elders aware that they're sick in the first place? Well, the person the elders may be aware of that. I mean, as they're trying to give good care to the flock, they might very well know that that this person is struggling. And so why don't they just barge in, kick the door down, and say, "We're here." Uh, well, be because I think faith plays an important role in the dynamic that's going on here. In the the person who is struggling with this illness uh, is, is to believe what God's word says about what could be a possible corrective or prescription or cure for their sickness. And God's prescription here is that God might be pleased to work through the elders of the church that that, that person belonged to. And, and so therefore, out of faith, this person contacts the elders and said, I'm sick. Would you pray for me? 
The elders might have already been secretly praying, but that's not the same thing of what's going on here. In this case, a person explicitly contacts the elders for the explicit purpose of, of coming around that person and praying over them. There's a couple more things he says about this process here to call the elders. In other words, it's, this is not a constrained thing. This has to be a willing. Th- a w- uh, this has to be willingly uh, uh, initiated by the person who's sick themselves. Um, and, 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 and then the elders are to pray. Let them pray. And um, and this is where sometimes us as Baptists then this is these are some of the scriptures that we get squeamish over. Because we, we're like, are we supposed to do that? Uh, well, the scripture says to do that. And so let's go ahead and do that. It, what does it say? Let, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, now, what's the purpose of the oil? Well, I don't know I'm altogether sure of that. But I do know this, that the scripture tells us to anoint the sick person with oil. And uh, that would, I don't have to know the explanation for everything to know what the scripture tells me to do. I don't necessarily have to know, well, why? Well, why? Well, why? Well, I, I, I would suggest to you it's probably symbolic. Oftentimes in the New Testament or in the scriptures as a whole, uh, the anointing with oil is symbolic of the presence of the Spirit of God. It's not that the oil brings down the spirit of God, but the oil is a reminder that the, as the oil is, is on the person, the spirit of God is, is, is on that person. It's, it's, a, it's a symbolic reminder of the presence of the Holy Spirit, and the oil helps that person to feel and sense the reality of the spirit's presence at that moment, because honestly, truth be told, I don't let this get out, but it's, it's not the elders per se uh, that is the difference maker here. It is the Holy Spirit who is the difference maker here. On top of that, as we're anointing with oil, it says, and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the, the, the reason that we would have access to plead for a healing is, is because of the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Elders don't have native power. Just to, I mean, we weren't born with power. Uh, we were born sinners just like anybody else. And, and, yet, and, and, and yet when we come in, in the way that the Lord has prescribed and we come resting in the presence of the Spirit, we come appealing to the authority and power of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can, we can pray over the one who is sick, whose illness is lingering and whose illness is perhaps even worsening, who has sought the Lord their own self, but, but, but now is even asking others to join in and pray over and around and upon them. And it says in verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. That's an amazing statement. It's an amazing statement because this this notion of, of praying in faith is, it, um, it, at the very least, it, it's a reminder that when we approach the throne of grace, we can do so with great confidence. We can do so with great expectation. We can do so knowing that, that there is nothing that is limiting us at this moment because we are appealing to the throne of the God who rules and made all things. 
Jesus would say in John 14, 14, if you ask, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Again, those, are, those, those feel at times like frightening statements because, because there are people who take those statements out of their context and, and twist those and distort those for, for goofy purposes. But, but, but just for a moment, let's just, just soak this in. And that is that, that God's heart is for his children. And, and when his children are hurting and struggling, then God's heart is for his children. And God wants the elders of that church to pray, believing that God, you love this person. God, you care for this person, and may this person feel this and know this, and and God, we are expecting you to heal this person, not that we're ordering God to do what we think he ought to do, but we're trusting in the Lord, and we're confident in what the Lord wants to do in this case, that he has put it upon the heart of the person to call the elders, that he has put it upon the heart of the elders to come around this person and to pray and follow the sequence that is ordered, that is instructed here to anoint with oil and pray in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to pray believingly, expectantly, to pray believing that this is what God's will is. Now, all of us are imperfect in deciphering and discerning that, but we come to the Lord and we come before his throne knowing that there is no limits on what the Lord can do. Now, I would just add as a sidebar, that what James is describing here is, is, is not meant to be a, a put down on traditional medicine or on going to your doctor or checking in at the hospital or going to the ER. I mean, this is, this is, again, this is not an either or uh, proposition here. Uh, those things can be done in faith, trusting in the Lord as well. And, 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 and yet there's something particular about this episode in terms of how when people are sick, we should not be dismissive of the power of God to just heal. We're not, we, we don't walk in magic, but we do live in the supernatural. We do believe that there's a God who is right smack dab in the middle of this world that he's made. And he can fix, and he can cure, and he can heal. James goes on to qualify, he says, now, um, uh, and and, um, uh, and the, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's an interesting if. He says, if, if. Not all sickness is a direct result from particular sins. That's not always the case. And yet, on the other hand, we need to be careful not to dismiss that as a causation as well. I don't have a nice formula how to straighten that out. Well, okay, so what explains your sickness? I, I, I don't know what explains your sickness. Sometimes it's just for the glory of God. It's not because of particular sin. Uh, and yet, 
What we need to remember here in our modern world, where everything has a materialistic explanation or naturalistic expectation, is not all sickness is rooted in cellular or molecular disease. Some sickness is actually rooted in human functionality. Someone has sinned against us, and the, the effects of that sort of abuse. Interesting book that is, came out in the last year or so, The Body Keeps Score. It just shows, it, it talks about the effects of abuse on an individual and how that affects their physical health. There's things that are incorrect in that book, but there's things that are helpful observations in that book as well. People sinning against us can, can place us in, in a state of existence in which our bodies absorb the impact of that and it has effect upon our bodily functions. And, and, and I think it's not much of a stretch then to suggest that even then some of the choices that we make uh, result in a, a, de a deterioration and a, uh, a, 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 a disordering of how our, our physical bodies will, will function. And so what's the solution of all of that? It, it, it might be sin. That's why he says, it, and, and, and if, it, where, if and where there's sin, so you, you, th then those sins will be um, forgiven. The, the, the context is, is that perhaps even as the elders then pray over that person, the elders try to understand uh, what's going on. Uh, the elders are not medical doctors, but they try to understand what's going on. They try to even understand a bit of the backstory and the history of the person and, and uh, even a, a bit of the person's response. Uh, um, Response to the ailments and, uh, and 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 maybe what has contributed to that or led up to that and 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 yet where there is sin then even that sin is brought before the Lord and the Lord always forgives confessed sin and then he shifts and he kind of it just tagging on to the tail end of that uh, reference to therefore, uh, and, if, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Uh, then verse 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Uh, so so it's, it's, he's just now broadened it. He, at first he says, are you sick? Call the elders. But he doesn't imply by that that the elders have this sort of a special uh, in-house uh, exclusive domain to appeal to the throne. It's one of, their, one of their callings to be men of the word and men of prayer and, 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 and yet built upon what he's just said, therefore, therefore connecting, to, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. So you call the elders, but then, but then you involve your church family as well. I mean, what do you call a group of people who regularly meet together and, and in the course of their regularly, habitually meeting together, they pray for each other and they acknowledge their sinfulness to each other and they even own up to their sins. What do, you, what do you call that when people regularly meet and pray and confess their sins to one another? What do you call it? You call it church. I mean, what, 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 what James is describing here is, is church is not just a religious perfunctory place 
that we, uh, that we show up at, but, but it's actually a gathering of people that we're a part of. And within that people, there is a lot of one anothering occurring amongst one another. James just lists two of the one another's. They're, they're there's over 40 uh, types of one anothering in the New Testament. These two one anotherings are you confess your sins to one another and you pray for one another. And really what he's advocating is that we understand church to be a culture of people who are oriented toward praying for and caring for and aiding each other in our spiritual development. In other words, that again, just like call the elders, just like you, you then, then involve your brothers and sisters who you go to church with. It, it, it assumes here that you're a, a regular, habitual, patterned part of a local body of believers, uh, that, it, that, that it wouldn't be odd for you to, to, to approach someone or to be approached by someone who knows you and you know them and said, would you pray for me? I'm struggling. Like, huh? Well, you, well that... That's kind of random. No, it wouldn't be random in church if we understood that church is to be not just a religious perfunctory thing that we attend, but it's actually a gathering of community of people uh, who have a calling of mutual prayer and mutual caregiving and mutual aid in our spiritual growth and development. Sometimes I think we adopt notions of care that are, um, well, they scrape the monkey way, as I would like to put it. You say, hey, are you a caring person? You bet I am. Sign me up. I'll take two. But, the, the, but we mean that in a very global, conceptual abstract way. And that's just a lot easier. It's easier to care for people globally, conceptually, and abstractly. Because it's, you don't have to like get into the mess of anybody's stuff that way. I love everybody all the time, everywhere. I just can't stand you, or you, or you. What James is advocating is is a kind of gathering in which praying and caring and confessing sins to one another is localized. It's concrete. It's tangible. So it's not just, yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree to that. Whatever. Yeah, I just pray, pray for each other and confess your sins to one another. I'm never going to do that, but I agree with that. You know. But, but it, it's like, no, these people whom you habitually gather with, who know you and you know them, do they pray for you? Do you pray for them? Do you know anything about their sinful struggles? Do they know anything about your sinful struggles? 
James is describing a, a culture of care that is local, concrete, and tangible. Something that has to occur as we develop closeness and relationship with each other. And yet, as we develop closeness and, and relationship with each other, then we roam around our gatherings with an alertness. We roam around our gatherings with an availability. We roam around our gatherings with an activeness. That it wouldn't be an odd thing for us to say for one, to one another, how can I pray for you? You want to do what to me? Isn't it odd that that would feel like an odd statement in a church gathering? I'm a private person. Well, yeah, so am I. I'm a North American European. I get that. I understand that's that's my culture. But I also understand the culture that James is trying to describe here, and that is those whom you habitually, regularly gather with should be the ones whom are praying for you and you are praying for them. Whom you know a bit about their sinful struggles and they know a bit about your sinful struggles. And, and, and yet then he adds a little kind twist to that, I think. So... Um, He's advocating a closeness um, for mutual care and mutual prayer and mutual aid. Uh, and, and, and yet I think when he goes on to say the prayer of a, in verse, into verse 16, verse 17, the prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. Might I suggest to you that in a kind way, he's also advocating that when you do ask for prayer, when you do confess your sins, you do have an element of discernment to that. Who are you going to ask to pray for you? Who are you going to confess your sins to? Someone who, who uh, uh, tweets a lot on Twitter? Don't do that. You, you, you want somebody who maybe, who maybe kind of reaches toward this descriptor here of, uh, if, I want, if I want someone to advocate to the throne for me, I, I want a righteous person to do that. If I'm going to acknowledge my sinfulness to somebody, I, I, I want to do that to for, uh, someone who is a righteous person. Now, now the, the big question then is, oh my, who among us is natively righteous? I didn't see any hands, and I'm not surprised. You didn't see my hand, and you shouldn't be surprised. I mean, what, what's, going, what's in play here when he says, uh, when, when you want someone to pray for you and want to confess your sins to somebody, you locate a righteous person. Because a righteous person has great power in the workings of their prayers. A righteous person is someone who belongs to Jesus. Someone who trusts in who Christ is and what Christ has done. 
For the fact of the matter is, while none of us natively qualify as righteous, what we do believe is that Jesus eminently qualifies as righteous. He lived a perfect life. He fulfilled all righteousness in everything about him, the way he talked and the, the way he acted and the way he related to others and the way he emoted and the way he thought. Everything was flawlessly, perfectly righteous. In fact, he's the only one on this earth as a human being who's ever had the ability to honestly lay claim to the tag, a righteous person. And then this righteous person, Jesus, went to the cross and died the death of a sinner. This Jesus went to the cross and took on the curse of God's condemnation for sinners. What? Why? Why must the only righteous person on the face of this earth go to the cross and die at the death of a sinner? He did it gladly. He did it to be a substitute. He did it to swap out. For upon the cross, he took the sins of his people and bore up under the curse and the condemnation, the, the wrath of God. He experienced that and tasted that for sinners, any and all who would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first part of the swap out. He took our sin. And then you know what he exchanged that with? The righteous life that he lived in exchange for taking upon his sin, taking upon himself our sin, he gave us his righteousness. Ah. So you know why I then said a righteous person is someone who belongs to Jesus? Because a righteous person is someone who doesn't have a native righteousness, but yet someone who has an alien righteousness who's it's now been permanently credited to their account. It is for that reason that any old Joe could, who knows Jesus could approach the throne of God boldly because we come through the blood and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, you want a righteous person praying for you. You, you want a person praying for you who knows Jesus, who knows the record of righteousness that Jesus has granted to us. And, and then, but wait, there's more. When Jesus gives to us a record of righteousness, he also drops his spirit inside of us that begins to transform us so that we begin a journey of progressively becoming righteous in our own experience. We grow in righteousness. You want someone praying for you who knows Jesus, who has a record of righteousness and who has the spirit of God God in them that is producing a righteousness in them. See, we, we become righteous through faith in Jesus Christ, and we grow in righteousness through faith in Jesus Christ. So we want a righteous person praying for us. We want to be that righteous person praying for others, not righteous in and of ourselves, but righteous because 
the blood of Jesus, righteous because of the righteousness of Jesus, righteous because of the indwelling Holy Spirit within us. We want to belong to Jesus. Why? Because someone who belongs to Jesus has the Father's ear. That's who you want praying for you. You want someone praying for you. You want to be someone praying for others who has the ear of the Father. I would suggest to you that's what, that, that's what is the underlying motivation when it describes Elijah. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed fervently. What would motivate us to pray fervently? We believe the Father is listening. Get away from me, kid. You're bugging me. Well, that one's not going to motivate you to pray very often, is it? But come, dear child. Tell your Father what is upon your heart. Tell me. Tell me for your own state, but tell me because of your brother or sister who is sick and struggling, tell me. It is the loving, kind provision of our Father to grant us this critter we call prayer. That we have access into the very throne of God. That through the blood of Jesus Christ and his Standing of righteousness, we come boldly into his presence so that as we, are, as, as we are struggling, as we know people around us who are struggling, we appeal to the throne of grace that we might receive help and mercy in our time of need. What do you call it when a group of people who regularly meet together Faithfully pray for each other. You call that church. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for all that your word teaches us. Thank you for what you have taught us from your word about prayer. Father, we are not self-made people. We don't even aspire to be self-made people. We want to be the sheep of your pasture. For we are, as a part of your family, a well-cared-for flock. You are good to us. You give us your ear. You invite us to come into your presence. You hold us. You sustain us. You give us all the grace that we need. And even in our moments of most profound felt weakness, you teach us and grant to us your strength. Thank you for prayer. For we pray these things in Jesus' name.